I got all, I got all, all the fucking work I need. I got all, all the fucking work I need. I got all the fucking work I need. I got all the fucking work I need. The American Vandal, from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebel. My introduction to the corpus of post-work and anti-work scholarship, which has inspired and informed this podcast series, began in 2016 when I read James Livingston's provocatively titled essay, Fuck Work, in Ion Magazine. Soon thereafter, I was co-teaching a Rhetoric of Economics course with my colleague Corey McCall, who introduced me to David Graeber's Strike Magazine essay on bullshit jobs. These two appropriately profane essays were revelatory to me as I grappled with the complex and often contrarian attitudes towards labor in works by the two figures most central to my own research, Mark Twain and John Maynard Keynes. Both Twain and Keynes move perpetually back and forth between radical appeals to and expressions of solidarity with the working class, on the one hand, and on the other, overt sympathizing with bankers, industrial titans, media magnates, financial speculators, neoclassical political economists, and conservative politicians. They participated as public intellectuals in the erosion of Victorian hierarchies and advocacy for the erection of social safety nets in the U.S. and U.K. between the American Civil War and the Second World War. But they also, more effectively than most people realize, played the stock market, invested in real estate, and accumulated the equivalents of tens of millions in capital by the time of their deaths. Twain and Keynes often had as much or more personal income than the stock jobbers, marketing and publicity gurus, and corporate executives they presented as exemplary of corrupt and extractive capitalism. And they both worked themselves ragged, at the expense of their physical health, sometimes at the expense of their marriages and other familial relationships. In works like Keynes's Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren and Twain's The American Claimant, they endorsed what we must now recognize as an insidious gradualism, the postponement of labor reforms and economic justice in the name of securing a distant future utopia, which we now know fails to materialize. But in other works, like Twain's King Leopold's Soliloquy and Keynes's The End of Laissez-Faire, they used their platforms to name sources and sites of injustice and inequity for the public, contributing directly to seismic shifts in government policy and financial infrastructure. Twain and Keynes both lived long lives and died very wealthy. They also both died believing the world around them was on fire likely headed towards unprecedented catastrophes from which the fortunes they left behind would offer no protection. And they wondered whether they could have done more. David Graeber certainly believed there was more to be done when he passed away in September of 2020. Among the things he left behind was a manuscript, The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity, co-authored with David Wingrow and published late last year. In this episode, I'm speaking with 
Livingston, and McCall, about Graeber, about the Great Resignation, about potential post-work futures, and much more. While there will be a couple of epilogue episodes to the world's work released in the coming month, this episode most accurately closes the arc we opened six weeks ago. Stay tuned after the episode for some updates about the series and the future of the American Vandal podcast. James Livingston is professor of history at Rutgers University, founding editor of Politics Slash Letters, and the author of six books, including No More Work, Why Full Employment is a Bad Idea, and Against Thrift, Why Consumer Culture is Good for the Economy, the Environment, and Your Soul. Corey McCall was, until recently, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Elmira College. He has since been a visiting scholar at Penn State's Humanities Institute and is currently part of the Cornell Prison Education Program and Legal Assistance of Western New York. He is co-editor of three recent books, Decolonizing American Philosophy from SUNY Press, Benjamin Adorno and the Experience of Literature from Rutledge, and Melville Among the Philosophers from Rowan and Littlefield. For more about our guests and a complete bibliography of materials discussed in this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash fuckwork. I'll start with Jim, in part because the title of your, your 2016 ION essay has emerged unofficially and organically as a kind of mantra for this series, invoked unprompted on at least three occasions by three different scholars in previous episodes. You know, the essay and, and your associated book, No More Work, was a direct response to the so-called Great Recession. And we have since entered into the great resignation. And Anthony Klotz, who coined that term, clearly it was a kind of wordplay on the great recession. Yeah. You know, that book came out in 2016. I wanted to, to ask to what extent the theories and histories of work that motivated you to write that book, you're thinking about them, has been changed by what might be seen as either an acceleration of the conditions that were we were undergoing during the Great Recession, or maybe an alteration of that landscape in some way. Yeah. <laughs> I, I keep going back to this, though. I keep wondering, did I have anything to say then? I, that was a real problem for me. Am I saying anything new here when I wrote that book? And since then, you know, the, the question has become more poignant, you know, for obvious reasons, the Great Resignation. And also uh, more difficult, it seems to me. Now, let me let me work backward, I guess, from the Great Resignation to the, the things that I was trying to emphasize in the in the book. At Facebook, I, I uh, tossed out the possibility that the Great Resignation was actually a general strike along the lines of what Du Bois called the general strike in Black Reconstruction. That is mm -hmm. an unorganized, organic, word of mouth rebellion against the pillar of the, the slave South, which was, of course, the labor system based on slavery. And, you know, since then, I, you know, I have to wonder, I mean, my God, you know, the unemployment rate is still below 4%. And yet people are still not flowing back to work. Um, now, uh, I had a conversation yesterday with my contracted friend in Charlotte, North Carolina, who said, well, you know, we kept our guys working all through last summer because we got gadzoos of money from the, the public spending that went on. He had guys in, in his shop, 
I think he employs 12 people altogether, mostly you know highly skilled labor. He had guys in the shop all summer long doing pretty much nothing except you know polishing machines and things like that. I still think there is some element of this general strike. People just are so sick and tired of how shitty these jobs are and how low they pay. On the other hand, it seems to me that savings are running out. I think those those payments by both the Trump and the Biden administration allow people to sock things away. And all the economists noted that the savings rate in this country went off the charts for the first time in a long time since the 1990s. So I think people are spending that down. And, um, you know, we'll see within, an, I think the next six to, to nine months, we'll see whether that cushion still exists. In the book, my argument it was, I thought, quite straightforward and quite simple, and that is that the labor market was broken in two senses. There weren't enough jobs, but more importantly, I think that the nexus or the connection, the transparent relationship between effort made and reward received between income and work was completely out of whack. And that was the real problem, that if you don't have a, a working market in labor, then you don't, as far as I can tell, have capitalism. I mean, speaking of the commodification of, of labor, that seems to be the key to the development of capitalism. And if labor is being decommodified, as you suggested in your opening, well, then uh, something very bizarre is happening. And to me, it, it spells the impending, at least, end of, of capitalism as, as we knew it. We are all so locked into the Lutheran, Hegelian, Marxist, tradition of defining human nature in terms of its capacity to produce value through work, we, we can't seem to extricate ourselves from that notion. And therefore, we, we tend to ricochet off the proposition that maybe it's time that we drop that assumption that human nature resides in work, look for other possibilities. But also, in the same vein, if income and, and, and effort are now decoupled, why not look toward uh, what Graeber calls a basic income, what most of us call a universal basic income, as the solution to the breakdown of the labor market, but also as a, as a solution to the social, the moral, the intellectual problem that that breakdown represents to us. Not just as historians or as workers, but, you know, as human beings. Like, what, what are we made of? What are we doing here? And I'm glad, I mean, one of the things that I, I wanted to talk more about that was brought up by... Rachel and Lee Claire a couple of episodes ago was the extent to which the resignation in great resignation is a kind of affect also, right? It describes, as you were also, the psychic toll of the changing conditions, as you put it, the breakdown between effort and reward. What we expect out of a meritocratic capitalist system yeah. It maybe was never being realized, but certainly is transparently empty in the contemporary. Yeah. And so what are the sort of psychic tolls that that takes? And, and what are the sort of cultural forces that try to make up for that resignation, yeah. which then oftentimes moves from affect to action? Yeah. 
I'll pass it to Corey. I know one of the things that we talked about when we were teaching Graeber together a few years ago was Graeber suggests that part of how the emptying out of the labor force that Jim identifies in his book, part of how it's made up for is by the creation of sort of bullshit jobs and an attempt to kind of dignify work in ways that aren't necessarily through greater wages, aren't necessarily through the sort of ethic of work. I was curious for you, Corey, looking at this period through the lens of Graver's bullshit jobs theory. How do you think that explains not just the sort of statistics of great resignation, which as Jim pointed out, are not necessarily clear, but rather this sense that we have some sort of more dramatic labor crisis, more transparent and tangible labor crisis happening under the conditions of COVID in the last couple of years. One of the ways of approaching that question is to think about this term that became really popular early on in the pandemic is, and it's still bandied about, right? This, this idea of essential workers. So at the beginning of the pandemic, there was this sudden insight, at least among politicians, that, wait a second, if, if we're going into to, to a lockdown, then there are still things that we need, things that are essential, things that we aren't going to be able to get because these these people who work these low-paying jobs without benefits, they're suddenly essential, right? So I think one of the really interesting things about the pandemic was at least at the level of political rhetoric, there was a, a sudden realization that there were bullshit jobs, yeah, but also essential workers, and, and, and how do we understand that distinction? Mm. Mm. Now, of course, the essential workers were, were always there. It was just at the level of public discourse, at the level of politics, we gave these people a name as if to honor them so that we wouldn't have to pay them more, so that they'd continue to do these jobs at much greater risk to them, pick our fruit, butcher our hogs, deliver our groceries, teach our children, and take care of us. Right? So, so that was a really interesting development. And I think it's a key part of this this great resignation, if, if there is one, this idea that, well, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do these things anymore. Certainly not for seven, eight, nine, ten dollars an hour. I'm not going to put myself and my family at risk so that you can live comfortably in your, you know, your gated community. No, I don't know if it was a real development or if it was, like I said, a rhetorical one and a political one mm. and, and how those things relate to one another. But I also want to come back to, to one of the things that Jim said, and it reminded me of a, a theme that sort of runs through through Graeber's work, and that is our inability to imagine possible futures. So when Jim mentions that we've got to think of ourselves as something other than or someone other than a worker, someone who gets meaning and value through work, then the question becomes, how do we even imagine ourselves otherwise? How do we think of ourselves as someone who doesn't work, but understands him or herself differently? And I think that's really tough to do. Yeah, absolutely. Let me point this question at Corey, too. When, you, when we talk about essential workers and, and you use the word um, necessary, the pandemic and before that, the Great Recession, it seems to me, and then before that, the trends uh, of the early 20th century, the 1920s and 30s particularly, 
they do call into question this very notion, this very Marxist notion of socially necessary labor as the, the crucial component in calculating value, the value of the things that labor produces. For me, I'm still residually Marxoid here. That's a great development and because it, it, it could make us more curious about those other possibilities that Graeber emphasizes and that Corey has just mentioned. It could make us, you know, more eager or more ready to to contemplate uh, those different futures. But you know, essential workers, even Graeber says when he, he's talking about bullshit jobs, he says we can do without corporate lawyers. I mean, which I find kind of laughable, but you know, okay, let's let's grant him the possibility, the point. But then he he goes on to say, you know, what are the essential workers? Well, the first one he comes up with is teachers. Hmm. <laughs> Those are, in fact, essential workers, and yet they are, we are, us once upon a time and, and current adjunct professors. My God, we're, we're the detritus. We're the, the refuse of this economy, this political economy. I mean, my God, public school teachers, I mean, they're treated like dirt. Most of the hires, as you guys know, most of the new hires in, in universities, especially public universities like Rutgers, for God's sake, two-thirds of the new hires over the last 30 years are adjuncts. They're non-tenure line people. You know, what the hell is going on? The real possibility that the value of labor is now approaching zero, about as startling a development as, as any. But if that's true, then the very idea of socially necessary labor and what we value in these commodities that we all seem to need and want, it certainly does put into question this thing we call capitalism. Um, and it's uh, potential for liberating human beings from not just work, but from necessity as such. One of the things that you both sort of point us towards by invoking that moment of essential worker rhetoric, the winter and spring of 2020, just as the pandemic was reaching the United States, one of the things it really points us towards is that exactly those people who were deemed essential workers in that moment were being told prior to that moment that they were about to be automated out of existence. The teachers, the caretakers, the, the retail workers, the drivers, they were exactly the classes of workers who were being told up to that point, your jobs are about to disappear. Maybe five years, maybe 10 years, but you are going the way of the dinosaurs. Right. And of course, within six months after that, we returned to, and maybe even accelerated, certainly for those of us who work in education, the sort of ed tech opportunity trying to use the shock doctrine of the pandemic yeah. as an opportunity to further colonize both education at the secondary and the higher ed level. We returned almost immediately to that sense that those essential workers were expendable. And I think that might be one way of thinking about this moment of resignation. The claims that are being made, claims that I think, as Jim points out, are suspect about whether sort of necessary labor is going to vanish. Mm -hmm. Those claims intersecting with 
everything that's been going on during the pandemic are what are reinforcing in some way the Great Resignation, not just as something that people are actually doing, withdrawing their labor from the market, but also that they are fantasizing about, that they are openly contemplating, that they are derogating the integrity and value and dignity of work in a way that is, I think, in many ways, antithetical to the Protestant ethic, to the sort of American dream mentality, the meritocratic delusions of capitalism. The, the psychic and cultural values are breaking down in part because of that tension, that cognitive dissonance of being told one month you are absolutely integral to the survival of civilization and the next month we're going to replace you with a computer as soon as possible. Yeah. Is that what you mean when you were talking about the transition or the translation of affect into effect? Is that is that what you were getting at? Right. Yeah. Or, or affect into action. Okay. Okay. We talked a couple of episodes ago about something that's happening in social media, which you may or may not have seen, people sort of dramatizing quitting. Whether or not they're actually quitting is unclear, right? But they are dramatizing, telling off their boss, resigning from their job, that there is this sort of fantasy and romanticization of withdrawing your labor from the workforce that prior to maybe this moment, that was something to be ashamed of. And instead it is being held up as something that is justified and valuable and that you should be proclaiming to the world through, you know, TikTok. In some cases, people are actually quitting their jobs, but many people are fantasizing openly about quitting their jobs. And I think that's part is really interesting. The fantasies are interesting too. And I think it's a little bit more complex. It's not a return to the 60s, right, of of sort of dropping out, uh, tune in, turn on, drop out. It's people who maybe had this really high-stress job on Wall Street saying, well, you know what, this isn't valuable and meaningful to me anymore. I'm going to find work that is. I'm going to start baking bread and selling it or something, right? I'm going to become a painter. It's, It's still within this paradigm that says work is how I create value and meaning within the world and for myself. It's just that being a Wall Street financier isn't valuable and meaningful to me anymore. There are some people who are reveling in in dropping out, but then there's this other class of, of, of people who are just switching jobs, switching careers, but still finding value in work, just a different kind of work. Maybe something that's more bespoke and crafty. <laughs> and that raises that question of uh, meaningful work, which is always implicit in what Graeber is writing and, and talking about. Was sorry, but what what you just said, Corey, raises the question for me. What what I've never seen disappear from the discourse of work and labor in this country, and this goes back, my God, you know, well, it goes back to the 17th century, is the idea that your labor to be meaningful has to be productive in the sense that it is actually adding to the sum of value that you inherited, that you have actually improved those raw materials to the point where they are now more valuable as shoes than they were as leather and straps. Both Matt and Cora here, what I see in the contempt for the 1%, the utter contempt, the other just revulsion at these miserable assholes who put themselves into space and think that that's an achievement. Good God. That that contempt, which also informs the fantasies, it's based on this idea that if what you do represents a deduction from the sum of value that the rest of us have created, have produced, then you're a parasite on the body politic and you deserve the contempt that we are willing to heap on you now, as always. I mean, I don't think that notion has ever disappeared. 
It's one of the, the, the democratic, if you will, implications of the Protestant work ethic, which we can't afford, seems to me, to forget that like we say something for nothing is a bad idea. Okay. But if you reformulate that and you say, you shouldn't be able to live off my labor and do nothing and be some indolent aristocrat, that's wrong. That's simply wrong. If you're going to consume goods, you ought to be producing them. Now that gets us as pointy-headed intellectuals uh, wearing our white collars into some kind of trouble because you know we're the mental labor now and 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 previously. But what do you guys think? I mean, you think that that's part of this animus towards the one percent? Is it part of these fantasies that we see unfolding in in all kinds of ways? Um, There's definitely an element of that, right? There's a current of rethinking the the glorification and the idea that wealth makes one a good person. But I think we don't have to look far to see sort of a countercurrent to that in the glorification of, of Donald Trump as someone who's a good person because he's wealthy. Or Elon Musk. Yeah. So I think, and again, this is just my impression that people are gradually reconsidering this sort of glorification of wealth that goes back to at least the 1980s, if not earlier, yeah. the glorification of the wealth tied up in the stock market, the, the wealthy businessman. Right. But that reconsideration exists uncomfortably, I think, with a belief yeah. that, that people like Trump and Elon Musk are, are better people huh. than, than the rest of us, wow. simply because they're wealthy. Wow. I would add to that, I think, that one distinction that I see it engaging with American culture, particularly from essentially around 1835 and the sort of securitization of the American economy. 1835, did you say, Matt? Yeah, yeah. So like the, you know, the emergence of the New York Stock Exchange and the start of a intersecting mass culture and financialized economy, right? Okay. That's a kind of epochal moment for me in my right. research. And so one of the things that I, I see when I am reading and researching that I don't necessarily see codified in, in a lot of the theories that I engage with is a distinction between labor in the Marxist sense and also in the Weberian sense, right? The labor as the reward, both the means and the ends. And another thing which has been crucial to particularly, I think, the American way of valuing work, which is the glorification of risk, mm -hmm. that one of the things that you see certainly as a rationale for glorifying the Rockefellers and the Carnegies and the robber barons of the 19th century is, sure, they worked hard for a period of their lives, and eventually they, they also lapped up the luxury of the Gilded Age. But those who wanted to dignify them despite their living in that luxury would say they took enormous risks. Risks to their wealth, to their safety, to their health, to the stability of their family. They made these sort of entrepreneurial ventures. They went west. They took up new technologies. They invested in things that might have been dangerous to their health or their lives even. And that what we might see as another form of work is the ability to take on that risk. Whereas most of us don't have you know, the gumption. And I think that's something that 
that holds up deep into the 20th century. But I do think that it's fading now because it does not seem that exactly those people, the 1%, as you said, Jim, that are gaining those enormous wealth, it doesn't feel like they're taking on risk. Yeah. It feels like the so-called great risk shift, I think is the, the hacker term. The risk has all befallen the rest of us. We're the ones that merely by existing are always on the verge of some form of danger. Whereas the bankers, the entrepreneurs, the Silicon Valley venture capitalists, they're gonna get bailed out. Yeah. <laughs> right? There is no longer that kind of glorification of risk being a justification for wealth because actually in the sort of klepto-Keynesian state, risk redounds only to the people who are already on the verge of poverty. I don't, I, we shouldn't be arguing with each other. But on the other hand, let me, let me see if I can problematize, as we used to say, this kind of periodization, this admiration for wealth that, that Corey cites and that, that you're at least, I think, implying in, in suggesting that risk itself is what is what separates the, the go-getter, the man on the make from the rest of us. I think one of the enduring tropes of American culture, not necessarily the literature, is the idea that the, the capitalist is suspect, but the entrepreneur is not. Mm -hmm. Because the entrepreneur is still mixing his labor, you know, with these materials, working alongside his employees, hoping to promote them and so forth. And, and that goes back to this idea of productive labor. The entrepreneur is, is somebody, uh, you know, who's he's very, very different than, than the bureaucrat, the, you know, the, the CEO of our time. And, and that goes back then to the... Um, what you were suggesting, Matt, about the, the distinction between Marx's definition of labor and, and, and Weber's. Marx, in volume three of Capital, he's very explicit that the intersection of, on the one hand, modern credit, and on the other, modern corporation, uh, you know, modern joint stock companies, he calls them, that that intersection has produced a socialized mode of production. That's what he calls it. He also says that this intersection has abolished capitalist property within the boundaries of capitalist production itself. I mean, that's a quote mm -hmm. from volume three. Okay, so he's saying basically that the rise of the corporations on the one hand and modern banking on the other, and this is specific to the 1890s, not the 1830s, has created not only the possibility, but the actual social groundwork for socialism. And yet he also, in, in the same chapters where he's describing this new development, he says the separation of ownership and control specific to these modern joint stock companies, these corporations, has created a class of speculators and stock jobbers who have no responsibility whatsoever to the assets they're managing and controlling because they don't own them. And that then gives rise to the kind of speculation that doesn't include risk, right? Like these guys, you know, they're playing with other people's money, as, as Brandeis, you know, reminded us in uh, was it 1914 so you know I, so I wonder about this I mean um, maybe maybe one of you can go back to this the distinction between uh, definitions of labor in, in Marx and, and Weber and we could we could start there but I don't you know I don't know I'm, I'm you know I'm, I'm finding this a, a great deal of fun I got to say because uh, I don't speak history anymore I mean <laughs> I'm not in the game anymore it's like it's fascinating to hear you guys talk I wanted to actually use this discussion to, to go back to something more recent because of course the the socialization of risk and the opposition to that was what fueled 
Occupy Wall Street and other mass movements after the Great Recession. And, and, and people were saying, wait a second, right? We're going we're gonna to bail out the banks. We're going to bail out Wall Street. What about Main Street? And I think yeah. it's interesting to see this, this longer view of history going back to the 19th century and how we're still having these same debates today. Yeah, there's a guy at the, um, well, I don't know where he's at now. His name is uh, Willem Buter. He's the former chief economist at the Bank of England, and then he became the chief economist at uh, uh, Citicorp, the Citibank. And he and the former chair, the director of the Bank of England, this guy's name is Melvin King. They both have made the argument in public. Now, and these guys are central bankers and uh, private sector bankers. They both said that we have socialized risk in banking in general in two ways. One is the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which makes taxpayers basically the, if not the owners, then the proper directors of bank assets as such, because the, you know, the banks, you know, don't have to be responsible to their depositors or to anybody else because the taxpayers, us, stand behind their their risk taking in the in the marketplace and the other uh instance of this of course is is tarp itself you know the way that we bailed out the banks in uh in 2008 and, and nine so the risk has been socialized to the point where you can actually talk about an actually already existing socialism in this country as marx did back in the 1860s and yet and yet this goes back to uh to what you both said at the at the opening, we we don't seem to have the the imaginative capacity to think our way past this thing we call capitalism. I mean, not even the guys at Jacobin seem to have a clue there. I think that's a really I think good way to transition into something I wanted to ask you both about, which is David Graeber's posthumous book, right, The Dawn of Everything, oh. and. And one of the things that I think is great about that book, and also one of the things I admire about Graeber, is that although he is clearly a Marxist and, and clearly believes in the determinism of material conditions, he is also very sensitive to the power of narrative. And that seems to be one of the things he's trying to interrogate along with David Wingrew as the co-author in this book. One of the things that they are interrogating is a kind of myth of progress. Mm. One of the many narratives that we have to contend with, Jim brought up another one earlier, right? That we have a whole range of very wealthy public figures who are jockeying for the position of the entrepreneur. What is the difference between Peter Thiel and Elon Musk and the CEO of Goldman Sachs? One would have to quibble about how their actual activity in the marketplace is distinct from one another, mm. but they are definitely trying to jockey for the position of being the entrepreneur and not the capitalist. Right. And I think that's another narrative, a, a romanticized version of capitalism. What did you think about the stakes of this book? Graeber sort of turns us back as he often does to a distant moment, <laughs> right? To start thinking about the present. 
he states in no uncertain terms that the stakes of this book are in forcing us to reckon with the conditions of work in our moment. But he's looking yeah. to the, you know, the distant past to sort of indigenous civilizations in the United States and elsewhere to these ancient civilizations, many of which are very unfamiliar to the vast majority of his readers, drawing upon archaeology and anthropology. I wondered how you would dressed yourselves to the stakes of those claims, right? That, that we could turn to the mega sites of Ukraine for some insight into how to change the narratives of labor in the 21st century. So, so one of the really interesting things about that book, and I'm still processing it and working my way through it and, and thinking about it. Well, it's, it's a book for, for insiders and Outsiders. It's a book for people who know the literature of anthropology and archaeology and those who don't. Part of the difficulty that, that people have had with it is that insiders are saying, wait a second, you're, you're playing fast and loose with the scholarship here, right? You're making claims that, that aren't warranted, that aren't justified in the literature. That's inevitable when you're taking on a project that's it's sort of at its heart, playing two contradictory audiences for, for insiders and outsiders, a really specific project and a really general project. But I also think that one of the things that they're trying to do in that book, if, if we begin with the claim that I've already cited, that one of the really difficult things we or aren't able to do is to imagine a future or imagine a variety of different futures different from our present. Then I think one of the most fascinating things that they're doing in that book is going back to the past to help us to reimagine futures, yeah. trying to think about these histories and sort of opening up the past getting us, if, if we're open to it, to think about the past so that we can rethink not just our, our present, but think about alternative futures. Graeber and Wingrow are going back and they're saying, wait a second, if we can't sit here and imagine possible futures, let's go back and see cultures and societies, these peoples, you know, going back to the Neolithic times, that are thought of in this, the mainstream scholarly literature as a dead end, right? Because we buy into this narrative of progress. And let's go back and reconsider those pasts and see what those the relevance of those pasts are for, for not only our present, but our possible futures. Yeah. Hmm. I have real trouble with Graeber. You know, he's obviously a, a brilliant scholar and in, in Corey's sense, also a, someone who can actually write history as if it matters to everybody, not just the insiders in the academy. But, um, the, the two key phrases that I've heard you deploy, Matt, a return to, how do we return to a past without replicating the past? How do we return to the past and bring it into the present without denying ourselves the possibilities of, of real progress, you know, moral progress as well as economic progress? In the, in the, and then, Corey, you didn't say return to, but going back to the past and retrieving some elements of it that could open up our thinking and allow us to consider these alternatives in the present and for the future. I have two problems with, with Graeber's periodization, and this, this goes for debt as well as the, the new book. One is that there is no periodization. Debt, for example, is almost appalling in its ability to define capitalism as anything that involves money and debt. And the alternatives there are, of course, the military-driven imperial projects of early modern states, especially England, but also France and Spain. And that bothers me because if we can't 
figure out what differentiates capitalism from its predecessors going back 5,000 years. We don't have anything specific to say about how to right the wrongs. You know, so that's one thing. I mean, the, the going back part, all three of us are historians one way or another, and we don't have any choice. That's what we do. We think that, that the past is usable to the extent that we can bring lessons from it into the present without mutilating that present and foreclosing certain possibilities for the future. My other objection to the anthropological character of, of his inquiry is the idea that the development of a money economy, the development of modern credit, and most pointedly and most importantly, the development of wage labor do not represent progress. For me, and I guess I'm, I'm a really old-fashioned Marxist in this sense, it seems to me that the rise of a market in labor, the, the rise of wage labor, is in fact an extraordinarily liberating event. And with it comes, of course, a money economy. You can't have a wage labor system. You can't have a market in labor absent a money economy. I mean, that's, you know, people get paid wages. They don't get paid in kind. They aren't coerced in other ways. That is to say, wage labor actually allows for the development of an abstract individuality that prior to the development of wage labor does not exist. An individuality that, that sees itself, is conscious of itself as capable of all sorts of endeavors, enterprises, forms of work. And those possibilities of identity are not necessarily restricted to what your occupation is, what you do for a living, what, you know, what your, your work is. It's also, it seems to me, the development of money economies and modern credit and wage labor is also a way of, I know this will sound almost outlandish to some of our listeners, but it's also a way of breaking down patriarchy, breaking down, you know, the, the control of heads of households and tribes, their control over female bodies, their circulation in and through marriage, but otherwise as well. Again, I think I think Graeber's has done us a, a huge, huge uh, service by forcing us, not just asking us, but forcing us to go back to this past that most of us are just, we have no sense whatsoever of it. And to say, see, once upon a time, people only work three hours a day. During the harvest you know, season, of course, they work 12 hours a day, 14 hours a day, sure. But for the most part, people didn't work the way we work. They didn't work, you know, by the clock and all that. Why can't we think in those terms? I'm glad you bring up the sort of liberation tradition in capitalism. I, I turned to teach Charlotte Perkins Gilman's The Yellow Wallpaper earlier this week. It had been a few years since I taught it, a few years since I read it. And so I was rereading it, including her essay about why I wrote The, the Yellow Wallpaper. And in the midst of also recording these episodes, I was really struck by a line in it where she's talking about this quack physician, Silas Ware Mitchell, right, who comes in to treat her for melancholia and prescribes the rest cure. And it, it drives her, uh, you know, to the verge of madness. She says she exaggerates the character version, right? But even, you know, herself, so that she was driven to the verge of suicide and madness. She says what frees her, what escapes for her. She says, I cast the noted specialist advice to the wind and I went to work again. Work, the, the normal life of every human being, work in which is joy and growth and service without which one is a pauper and a parasite. Yeah. To see the extent to which uh, somebody like Gilman, who I think of as a, you know an incredibly 
progressive, not just literary figure, but also economic thinker. The way in which she adheres almost to a kind of Alger mythology version of what work does for the mind, right? You know, Jim asked us in, in his essay, Fuck Work, he asked us to reconceive of why do we define ourselves by work, right? We need to stop defining ourselves by work because work is going away for many of us. And so what, you know, what comes into place and maybe we can interpret the great resignation as an attempt, a sort of mass cultural attempt to try to define ourselves by something other than work. But what are we losing? Turning to the role that capitalism has had in things like women's liberation is a useful way to ask that question. When we no longer dignify work, if we no longer hold up work and careers as the way in which we define ourselves, what are we actually losing potentially? And so I'm reminded of, you know, the way that Elizabeth Anderson begins her her Tanner lectures, where she says, you know, we forget that thinkers such as Adam Smith and Karl Marx, who we think of as as really disparate thinkers, right? Very different in many ways they are, right? But what they had in common was that they saw the revolutionary potential of of the market and they spoke of the market in in this revolutionary way. Speaking the, the, the language of going back and retrieving again, right? But going back and looking at that moment when Adam Smith and Marx could both agree that, yeah. the, that the market was was revolutionary, I think is is worth considering. So that we're not we're not simply rejecting capitalism without considering the 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 complex history yeah. for good and ill. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm glad you cited Elizabeth Anderson. You talk about private government, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a great book. But I mean Marx gets over this, you know, in the in the manuscripts of the 1840s, he, he's still attached to the to the romanticization of work, if you mm-hmm. will. And and by work, he means something very specific, and it's artisanal labor. He gets over that somehow between the mid-1840s and the mid-1850s, and that's when he starts drafting capital in the Grundrisse. And he moves beyond, it seems to me, the entrepreneurial worship that is in Smith. Smith is talking about what Marx called simple commodity circulation, where somebody produces a commodity, commodity gets money for it, and then with that money buys another commodity to sustain his life, not necessarily to accumulate. The point of of productive labor, the point of, of working for Smith and for the early Marx, it seems to me, is to reproduce a self-mastering individual the self-mastering personality that makes Republican government and a great deal else possible. Just about the same time as, as Gilman is composing Yellow Wallpaper, William James is speaking the idiom that we now use as a matter of course, as a, as a sort of commonplace. In the moral equivalent of war, he's saying, you know, it used to be that work and war bred men from boys. That's how you got beyond boyhood and became a man. You know, you went to war or you went to work. Well, he says, you can't have world war anymore. And that's what kind of war is shaping up in 1909 and 1910. But where's the work? Where do people, where are people going to like learn all these manly masculine virtues? And that's what he calls them. How are we going to maintain the very idea of manhood and men if we don't have any work? Well, and his proposal, of course, is, you know, public spending. We got to put them to work. But there's not enough jobs, you know, for real that this economy is producing through private enterprise. 
it's a remarkable moment. And, and it seems to me that, that what Corey said earlier about how these debates just go on, that we haven't really argued in novel terms, we're still in this argument. You know, on the one hand, by God, you know, work is the key to everything. That's why, you know, everybody wants full employment, left to right. Lunatics on the left, lunatics on the right. They want, you know, our God put us to work. And on the other hand, there are people like, I think, Graber, and quite possibly the three of us as well, who think, eh, maybe not. Maybe that's not the way, the surefire way to reinstate virtue as such, not necessarily masculine nor, nor feminine, but to make us whole, to make us into real human beings because we work on the world, because we shape it, because we produce value in doing this purposeful social labor of ours. It's not goofy. It's not crazy to think that the human species is distinguishable from other species for that reason, that, that we don't simply graze. We construct social systems whereby we can produce and appropriate and distribute goods. E.O. Wilson thinks that ants do that too, but they're doing it instinctually. We don't do it instinctually. I just, I just don't think that we, there's any way for us to go back to, to the idea and to the reality that work is what defines us, what distinguishes us from animals and what, uh, you know, gives us the possibility of initiative, self-discipline, self-mastery, access to a share of society's goods. I don't know. I've become an agnostic on this. It, it had never occurred to me until you were speaking just a few minutes ago about William James that William James sort of gets to Keynes before Keynes does. Absolutely, yeah. The project that Keynes takes up in the economic consequences of the piece and forward yeah. is very much along those lines of we have to make a choice between war and work. Yeah. And if that's the choice, Keynes is going to choose work every time, yeah. even though he also is somebody who understands that in the long run, yeah. our grandchildren maybe should be freed of this as great says, as you have pointed out, yeah. it would be nice to think that maybe we can, you know, evolve beyond this. Yeah. But if it comes down to war or work, let's do work. Let's do full employment, yeah. right? Whatever that looks yeah. like. And I'm all for that. Yeah. I mean, if that's the choice, right. but I don't think it is. Yeah. We are lucky enough to live in a moment where those aren't the choices anymore. I, I don't say we can do better, but we can do different. We can actually like raise the question of, okay, what, what are we? What can we do? you know, about ourselves and the world. I mean, you know, and there's a million answers out there that are really good ones now, in large part because the younger generation, that means you guys and your children are, you know, are doing some pretty damn important work here, especially on climate change. I want to end with a question that I wanted to ask you both. We may end up cutting it. You may choose not to answer it, but it felt like it was an appropriate one <laughs> to close with, in part because throughout this season, even in episodes where the working conditions of academics were not the central focus, it is still a podcast by academics. Our predominant audience is people that are working in some aspect of education. Huh. Well, I didn't know that. And um, both of you are, as Jim alluded to earlier, in a kind of transitioning out of academia. Corey moving into a nonprofit sector job, Jim retiring. And I wonder if that gives you a kind of perspective on academic work that is different from what you might have had two or three years ago when you know you were still very much embedded in the institutions where you, you both spent decades. Yeah. So one of the things that I've noticed recently, 
since you know I'm not a day-to-day academic anymore, is how pernicious the romanticization of academic work is for for academic workers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How difficult it is for us to think of academic work, what we do as scholars and teachers, as a job. Mm-hmm. The tendency we have, and it's an understandable tendency, right, to romanticize our work as academics is easily co-opted by administrators who take advantage of our romanticism so that, you know, we'll work and and teach five, seven, ten. Because we love it. Because we love it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's not a job. Because it's meaningful. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a a calling. Right. It's a vocation. If the professionalization of academia at the expense of the humanities, social sciences increasingly, and even the the hard sciences, if that project has any hope of of being stopped or averted, one of the things that we have to do as academics is stop romanticizing our labor. There are many other things we have to do too, but I I think that's a place we should start. That's a great point. When you say romanticization of our labor, I, you know, I hear immediately not just meaningful work, but meaningful work of a very, very specific kind. The Greek word poiesis, that, that's, that's where, where it centers, that's where it focuses. That is the literal translation, I guess, of that word is composition. So that writers, poets, artists generally, and artisanal labor, you know, skilled laborers, they are the ones who are doing the right kind of work. I think that's what you mean, correct me here, by the romanticization of, of academic labor. You know, we, we think we go into the academy, we're thinking, well, we're really on our own. We're going to make our own hours. We're going to write what we want within limits, of course. And we're going to be able to teach what we want and teach how we want, that kind of thing. So that I think there's a whole lot of myths that attach to it, but there is some residual truth in the idea that that we are doing meaningful work because we're creating the curriculum. That's what's disappearing very, very fast. Mm -hmm. At Rutgers, they've got this automated algorithmic system now to assign you your teaching schedule. What? You know, it used to be like, you know, here's what we want to teach. Okay, here's what you can teach. Here are the rooms. What do you think? It was a negotiation between real live human beings. And now the central administration says, here are the rooms available. Mm-hmm. Here are the courses that got to be taught. I mean, it's like, wow. David Graeber's sort of love of the beauty of the anarchy of decentralization, like it's something that we could really connect to as academics because that is maybe a fantastical, yeah. but it is kind of an image of the university in the mid-century phase. That what, what you get when you have faculty governance and that faculty operates, as Jim describes, unto themselves, teaching how they want, writing how they want, prioritizing what they want, setting their own hours. What you have is, in some ways, the kind of society that Graeber imagines in many of those selections from Dawn of Everything. One of the things that that does seem to be changing, right, is increasing hierarchy, increasing centralization, increasing control, increasing automation, that the academy is one of the last things maybe to be fully integrated into the desperate working conditions that you describe in No More Work. Yeah. Well, that's a depressing note to end on. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm not sure. I might have to cut that. that, (laughs) (laughs) That was James Livingston and Corey McCall. I'm Matt Seymour. 
For more about our guests and a complete bibliography of materials discussed in this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash fuckwork. This has been The World's Work, the fourth season of The American Vandal from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. It has been, any way you slice it, our most popular season, and I want to thank you foremost for listening. Your engagement far surpasses anything I dared to hope for when we launched this niche academic podcast in the fall of 2020. In the coming weeks, we will have a couple of special episodes, which you might think of as epilogues to the world's work, including a crossover episode with the podcast High Theory. And we have several additional seasons of The American Vandal already planned and in production, including a deep investigation of Native Americans and other indigenous peoples in Twain's work, produced and hosted by Mika Turem Nigren. I'll be back later this year for a series on the Federal Reserve, co-sponsored by Phenomenal World, a publication of the Jane Family Institute focused on political economy. Check them out at phenomenalworld.org. If you enjoy the American Vandal podcast, there are a couple things you can do to help us. Please consider rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts. Strong ratings make the show easier for new listeners to find. And to make a donation to the Center for Mark Twain Studies, go to marktwainstudies.com and click on the Donate button in the top left corner. I know, it wasn't working for a little while. It is now. Thank you again for all your support. And thank you to all the guests on the world's work. Merve Emre, Anna Cornblue, Lee Claire LeBerg, James Livingston, Corey McCall, Annie McClanahan, Nora Shalon, Ashish Sadiq, Dan Sinekin, and Rachel Greenwald-Smith. Thanks also to the staff at the Center for Mark Twain Studies, including director Joe Lamack, caretaker Steve Webb, who writes our music, and Jan Cather, who designed our logo. And special thanks to singer-songwriter Dan Reeder for lending us our special theme music for the world's work. Please check out Dan's full catalog on Apple Music, Spotify, or at danreeder.com. I got all, I got all, all the fucking work I need. I got all, all the fucking work I need. I got all, all the fucking work I need. I got all, all the fucking work I need.